You're listening to Working, a show about what people do all day. I'm your host, Jordan Weissman, and this week we're taking a bit of a detour in our series about Colorado's marijuana industry into the world of academia. I'm talking with Angela Bryan, a psychology and neuroscience professor at the University of Colorado Boulder, who has been doing some groundbreaking work on the effects of marijuana use. Medical research on cannabis has basically been stuck in the dark ages for reasons that Angela is going to explain during the episode. But it turns out that the new legal market is opening up all sorts of, you know, cool new opportunities to learn what this plant actually does to us, both the good things and the bad. I hope you enjoy. What's your name and what do you do? My name is Angela Bryan, and I'm a professor of psychology and neuroscience at the University of Colorado Boulder. And how does your work involve cannabis? So my work involves cannabis from the perspective of research. We were, when at the time that cannabis was legalized, we were very interested in, you know, what is this new um, product going to be? How is it going to affect public health? My lab, the CU Change Lab, studies health and risk behavior. And so that includes health behaviors like physical activity and healthy diet, but it also includes risk behavior like substance use, alcohol use. So the cannabis legalization issues sort of felt like it fit in terms of our interests. You were in Colorado, you studied addiction, and all of a sudden you have the most popular drug in America legalized. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) I I I don't know if it actually is technically the most popular drug. I assume it is. Alcohol is still number one, um, but definitely marijuana is right there behind it. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, we, um, so there's three investigators in the lab, Cinnamon Bidwell, Kent Hutchison, and myself, and we had all done research around cannabis in our past. In particular, Kent Hutchison had done some um, laboratory administration work where we actually had people come into the lab and use marijuana. At the time, though, you had to use the product that comes from the National Institute on Drug Abuse. And that's, um, it's, uh, there's a farm in Mississippi where they, NIDA grows um, products that uh, researchers can use. And so we brought people into the lab, got our products from NIDA, and people started using it. And it was Awful. Awful. <laughs> people, we had people throwing up. We had people saying, this is not like what we use. This isn't, this <laughs> is terrible. And this was in about, I want to say 2007. And so at the time, you know, Kent and, and I agreed with him. He said, this is pointless. Why are we doing this? This doesn't even look like what people are using. And so we stopped. You stopped outright. Completely stopped so, wait, all of that work. I. I guess I'm trying to wrap my head around the idea that the federal government could grows weed, or not that it grows weed. <laughs> no, no, that I could see that okay. it couldn't competently grow weed. You have all the power of the federal government, and what I mean, what was wrong with this product? Why were people throwing so up? So there's and- a, there's a rich history involved that would be a. a- topic for another podcast. But um, basically what happened is that the federal government seized marijuana in, I believe, the early 70s. And back then, the potency of marijuana was quite low. The THC potency was maybe 2%, you know, 4% at the most. Just to give you a point of reference, average THC potency on the legal market for cannabis flower is around 14 to 18%. And that's average, yeah. right? There's plenty that are 30%, 40%. We've we definitely saw higher while we were at the yes. dispensaries. <laughs> exactly. So, so they had these products that they seized in the early 70s, and they used that stock to then grow 
from then on. And it's only really very recently that they've tried to start expanding the products that they have available. So, and, and, and as another example, the products that they grow had no CBD in them at all. Um, and the products, as you know, on the legal market, a lot of them have CBD and, and people think that might be a really important component. So what the government is providing to researchers bears zero resemblance to what people were actually using on the illegal market back then in, in the two, early 2000s and looks even less like what people can get on the legal market. I'm also just trying to wrap my head around people attempting to get high on like Four percent th. So it's the amount they must have had to smoke. Yeah. No wonder they were throwing up. I mean, you're you're actually getting essentially the bag of, of oregano that your dad yep. bought in the seventies. That's more <laughs> like that's more or less what you're being handed. Well, and and it's also a quality issue yeah. because I don't know if this is still the case, but at the case when we were working with NIDA, it was products that had been frozen. Ooh. And then, you know, defrosted and sent to us. And so even the freshness and quality was bad. And so it's not just the composition of it, but the quality was really bad, too. I'm imagining like a bag of dill that's been in and out of the freezer. kind of what it looked like, yeah. That is gross. Yeah. And (laughs) and our participants let us know it was gross. (laughs) And so so this is when you wanted to research anything about cannabis and health yep. effects yeah. before legalization. That was yeah. what you had to use. Yes. And so you guys decided to stop. So we stopped. Entirely. So mm-hmm. where, where did so you just wrote off cannabis and yep. you looked at other things? Yes. Now, we continued to study it in other ways. So for example, I a lot of my work involves adolescent risk behavior. And we know that for adolescents, a lot of risk behaviors co-occur. So my main focus is sexual risk behavior. But we know for adolescents, a lot of that happens under the influence of substances, when they're drunk, when they're high. So I, of course, looked at cannabis use among adolescents, but by self-report, right? So I'd ask them, you know, questions about how they use it, when they use it, how often they use it, whether they use it, you know, in conjunction with sexual activity. But we stopped any kind of directly bringing people into the lab to see what the acute effects of it might be on things like cognition or feeling high. Just to clarify, why is it that you had to use the government's bad frozen dill weed? Yeah, (laughs) good good question. Why why wasn't it possible to do studies where you, you know, got some product from off the street or something like that? Well, because it's illegal. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) So... uh, Interesting fact that all universities and actually all government agencies are bound by a lot of different laws, but um, one of them in particular is the Drug-Free Schools Act. Right. Okay. And so we are not allowed to touch, have, or in any way come into contact with illegal substance use. There are even some campuses where you can't have alcohol on campus. Um, so that's a, kind of another component. CU is not like that. But basically, what it means is that you can't do research on illegal substances unless you have a DEA license. You are approved by the federal government to be somebody who handles illegal substances. You have to have special lockers, special safes, all kinds of permissions from legal entities. And that applies. So if you want to do studies of of heroin or methamphetamine or any of those things, you have to get your product through the federal government after layers and layers of approval. So we're simply not allowed to do research with street drugs. We can do research with alcohol. For example, we've done a lot of alcohol administration studies where we bring people in and give them alcohol and look look to see what happens. But that's a legal substance. I like, so I like that phrase, we're allowed to alcohol do. administration. Studies <laughs> <laughs> where we get folks drunk. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. In a controlled environment. That's, yeah. Yeah. So how did legalization then 
change the game for you guys? Legalization happened, and Kent and I both thought, wow, there seems like a big opportunity here, right? Because now people have tons of access. They're being told that in some cases, you know, it will help them with symptoms they're experiencing, pain or anxiety. On the other hand, there's these really high potency products on the market and, you know, dabs, for example, concentrates that I'm sure you saw in the dispensaries. They have potencies of like 80, 90% THC. What does that do to the brain? And we thought, this is great. This is like a whole new area of research on both the risk and the benefit side. And so we thought, fabulous, we'll do it just like we did our alcohol work. We'll just bring people on campus, give them, you know, legal weed and see what happens. But that Drug-Free Schools (laughs) Act thing um, reared its ugly head because even though it's legal at the state level, it's still illegal at the federal level. That's what I was going to ask. So you're still bound by all that. Absolutely. So if we were to have any cannabis product on this campus, the federal government could say, you are in violation. We're taking away all your federal grant money. And I don't know if you know a lot about how higher education works, but basically if the federal government took away all of the grant money that this institution gets from the federal government, we would shut down. So it's a big deal. And so um, Kent started working with the legal team to figure out, how can we do this? And what was your answer? Well, what we realized is that while we couldn't have people on our campus using their products, um, so we couldn't bring them into the lab and, and test them before and after and do that sort of thing, we could have them using products in their own homes and test them before and after they used, right? So our initial foray into this, and it's actually the paper that I sent you, is that we basically did a baseline assessment of people and then had them go to their homes and use their product. And then we went and picked them up brought them to the lab, and did some assessments. Now, that was fine, but there was a lot of variability in how long it took us to get them here. And It sounds like traffic could have screwed up your results. Traffic, <laughs> you know, like, did the Uber show up on time? I mean, all kinds of problems, right? I'm imagining like the appendix of that study, <laughs> just like all the footnotes. Like, okay, well, in this yeah. subject, it was, it was kind the of driver like got lost midway through. Okay, so. And and we, we recognize this is not going to work. This is yeah. not a viable strategy long term. And so the next idea, and... And you're probably getting the sense that Kent is our big idea guy. And that's definitely true. Our grad students talk about it. You know, if you want like a big idea, go to Kent. If you want to edit your grant, go to Angela. Because we have <laughs> we have different strengths. But anyway, his next big idea was... Editing grants is kind of important. It is. Well, we were it, just talking about the federal dollar. Yes. Like, you know, <laughs> it is. Um, so the the epiphany was, if we can't bring the subjects to the lab... Let's bring the lab to them. And so what we figured out is that if we could get a mobile laboratory where we could have in the back, you know, a a place for them to sit, place for them to have a laptop and do cognitive assessments, a place for us to take blood, if we could bring that to them, then we could drive to their house, get all our baseline assessments, have them walk back in, use their product, come back out to the lab. And that way, there's never a product on university soil because the lab, the mobile lab is university soil too. But we were able to do immediate before and after with our participants. So when you say mobile lab, are uh-huh. you talking about a van? It's a Dodge Sprinter van. <laughs> 
that I I can't help but laugh. Yet. <laughs> well, I <laughs> I argue it's amazing. The solution was yeah, amazing. yeah. I argued <laughs> that we should call it the Magic Mystery Machine, <laughs> but I was voted down, and so its nickname is the Canavan. <laughs> yep, and it's been it's been amazing. It has allowed us to do research that really nobody else in the country can do. That's that's fantastic. Yeah, it's cool. So how long have you been operating the van for? The so we are, this is our second year okay. with it. And we're, we actually just ordered a second one because we now have four, well, five different protocols that use the van. And so our one van is is really at its capacity. We can really only run two subjects a day. And with five different studies, we need to be able to run more than that. So we're going to have a second can of van arriving here any day. This podcast is sponsored by Ramp. Are you the decision maker in your company? Consider this. For the first time in decades, there's a better option for a corporate card and spend management platform. Meet Ramp, the only corporate card and spend management system designed to help you spend less money so you can make more. Most corporate credit cards offer points as incentives, but those points amount to less than their worth in real cash value. Ramp's business cards offer you cash back, real money in your pocket. Plus, you control who spends what with each vendor. And Ramp software collects and verifies receipts automatically, which means you'll stop wasteful spending and close your books in hours instead of days. Businesses that use Ramp add up to 5% to their bottom line the first year. If you're a decision maker, adding Ramp could be one of the best decisions you've ever made. And now get $250 when you join Ramp for free. Just go to ramp.com slash easy. Ramp.com slash easy. R-A-M-P dot com slash easy. Currents issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank members of DIC terms and conditions apply. Okay, I, I hate to harp on the van, but I'm gonna I'm gonna harp on the van for a minute. Go for it. What what is can you describe the inside of this place? Sure. What does it look like? So it's kind of the way that we had it designed, the back is kind of empty. Right. And so there's a lot of space and there's a cabinet. So you walk into the sliding door, right? That's in the back. There's a cabinet where we have supplies. So um, blood collection supplies. And I'll explain why we get blood in a minute. Blood collection supplies are our little uh, uh, laptops and iPads that we use for data collection, any protocol notes that need to be stored. And then on the left hand side, there's a, a little desk and a nice captain's chair um, that the participant can sit in. And then it's just kind of an open space and it has a, a faux wood grain floor. So that's kind of cool. I also argued that we should have shag carpet, but that <laughs> too was voted down. It's apparently difficult to keep clean and, and sanitized. So. I, I have a shag carpet in my apartment nice. and it is a little, it, they, they really shed. Yeah. yeah it's, <laughs> it's, they are difficult. Um, and so it sort of looks like it sounds like it looks like a doctor's office in there with a nice a little bit a, yeah. a nice chair yeah so it, we have some nice tapestries hanging so it doesn't look quite so doctor's officey okay and so people go in there and they and they use in the van so they smoke in the van no or they don't they smoke they at do all, not. and then they do all the tests correct in the van. yeah okay yeah. and so that's where they're and so that brings me to my next line of questions, which is what research are you actually doing? Sure. So on more of the sort of risk end of the continuum, um, as I said, the products that are available on the legal market have incredibly high levels of THC, higher than we've seen, you know, in, in 
ever, really, if you think about the concentrates. And so we're curious, what are the effects of those higher levels of THC? The other big difference is that some of the products also have CBD in them. And there's some evidence in at least the animal literature, in the molecular literature, that CBD might potentially counteract some of the negative effects of THC on things like memory and cognition. And and what is CBD? So CBD is cannabidiol, Mm -hmm. and it's a fairly potent anti-inflammatory. So there's speculation that the way that THC and CBD work in combination might be very special. So some of the medications that are used, so there's a medication called Sativex that's used for pain, um, and it's actually just received, I think, is is it Sativex that just received um, FDA approval? It's a combination of THC and CBD. But we don't know what what that looks like when people go into the dispensary and and buy their products. I, I was about to say, when you walk into dispensary now and you ask about what's selling, CBD's huge. Yes. It's like they talk about that is where the future of yes. medical is kind of headed. Yes, it's for sure. What's in the ointments, for instance, that yep. people apply or yep. the tinctures often to yeah. deal with pain. It's it's sort of separate from THC, which is what gets cla- classically gets you high. Right. And, and it's interesting because I think... In some ways, THC gets kind of the bad rap. I mean, maybe deservedly so because it's the the psychotropic, right? It's the one that 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 gets you high. While CBD does not have those effects and is an anti-inflammatory, and so people think, well, you know, this is this is the miracle cure for whatever it is that ails you. You're bad. Um, yeah, yeah. I. I mean, the jury's still out, right? We're still collecting data, but I'm actually more a proponent of the idea that they may actually work together for a lot of the conditions that we think about cannabis being used for. And more importantly, on the risk side, it might be that the combination of THC and CBD, you know, might mitigate some of the harms of those high THC products. Now, this is all speculation, right? This is exactly what we're testing. But in those projects, we recruit people who are current users. So these are people who are current cannabis users, and they um, come in and we say, hey, We'd like you to switch products to one of these that either has, you know, high THC, but no CBD, high THC and CBD, or just CBD. And we'd like to see, you know, what what that does in terms of cognitive effects, memory, things like that. The dabbing study, um, there, there are no CBD-only dabs. So the dabbing study is really about the high-potency concentrates. So I think we have conditions where people are doing about 60% THC versus about 80%. And again, those are current concentrate users who we ask to use a particular product for a certain amount of time, a few days, um, depending on the protocol. And then once we get a bunch of baseline information from them, we send them on their way. They go to a dispensary and buy their own product. So we can't supply it. Remember, we can't touch it. We can't provide it. So they get their own product. They use it in their home. We schedule a van visit. And on the day the van arrives, they come out into the van and we collect blood. Now, you might be wondering, why are you collecting blood when you know, you're studying cannabis use? People are inhaling it. And part of the reason is because we don't control how much they use. So if I were doing an alcohol administration study with you, I could sit three beers in front of you. I could watch you consume them and I would know exactly how much you drank. I can't do that in these studies because remember, we can't see it. You can't be over their shoulder. We can't touch it. We can't be in the room when they use it. So we use blood to quantify how much exposure they've had to THC and CBD. It's like a basic drug test, essentially. But instead of just 
you know they've smoked. Yes. That's not the yeah. Well, it's not. It's not a yes no kind yeah. of a question. It's, it's it's how much have they done? And so what we do is test their blood, do a bunch of memory and cognition tests. In those studies, we're also interested in the effects on motor control. So driving is a big issue with legalization. What you know? How are police officers supposed to know whether somebody's impaired? Um, mm-hmm. When are they impaired? And so we do a lot of those kinds of. Uh, motor and cognition and memory tasks, they go back into their home, they use their product, they come back out to the van, we take more blood so that we can quantify exactly what, how much THC exposure they've had, how much CBD exposure they've had, and then we do all those same tasks again. So we can look at the acute effects of these products. And I assume you're sort of randomly assigning people to different like people who are doing CD or, yeah. or is that yeah. part so, of it? So that gets tricky. And in some ways it depends on the protocol because there's also restrictions in terms of us randomly assigning people to condition because then it looks like a clinical trial. And I won't go into the miasma of the NIH clinical trial definitions, but there's some speculation that that might be verging on not being completely acceptable either. Oh, interesting. So, so what we've gone to, which is... which just, is just to, yeah. just to say, yeah, yeah. Not, a, not every listener is going to, you know, kind of think about the minutia of how yes. you actually run it. But usually when you're, you're, you know, running a study like this, it involves randomly assigning people to a control group and to, uh, uh, a, in this case, a smoker's group mm-hmm. or a dabber's group, yeah. right? But so you actually can't necessarily do that yet because of federal restrictions. Correct. So first of all, I'm very proud of you for knowing about random assignment. I uh, teach I teach research <laughs> methods at both the undergraduate and graduate level. So I'm always thrilled when somebody actually knows about the importance of random assignment. No, I, so for my... T- <laughs> For when I'm when I'm not interviewing people about cannabis or it's I, uh-huh. I write about economics and such. So nice, that's, that's part of it. But okay. um, so once yeah, but so social science stuff. I yes, but so okay, so random assignment is kind of out though. Well. In some ways, right? Because what we can do is we can say, okay, we have products A, B, and C. We'd like you to select product A, B, or C. And that's the one you're going to use for the next three days. Now, it turns out that when you have people do that, they kind of sort themselves into A, B, and C. And we don't know which A, B, and C are, right? Because that's blinded to the investigators. Mm -hmm. And so it's not exactly random assignment, but it's kind of the closest we can get. So we still have double blinding, um, well, until they pick up their product. You know, we still have the ability to have people in discrete groups, right? Right. Mm -hmm different experimental conditions. And it turns out, so we've we've written, uh, we have a paper under review about this right now, looking at differences between so-called observational studies versus true randomized controlled trials. Mm. And actually, it turns out that the effect sizes that you get are not that different. So we've been able to make the argument that even though it's not perfectly random assignment, we're still getting some reliable effect sizes. And because we can, because participants don't know which one they're going to get, right, which is why you do random assignment, because you don't want those expectancies. Mm-hmm. And because we use blood to quantify exposure, so we know which condition people actually were in once once they've completed the study, we're actually able to have a fair amount of control, even though it is objectively observational. It's interesting just because it seems like it's another place where you guys are, you know, you can't do the research exactly the way right. you ordinarily would, right. even though we're in the state where you have more freedom than almost anywhere else, it seems yes. like. It's still there are things you have to do that are a little bit different. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> because of federal law. And yeah, that's, yeah. That, that's interesting. That's, yeah. So I, I'm curious, you're working with people who smoke and smoke regularly. Yep. How 
reliable are your subjects? What is it work like? Are they tricky to work with? So there have been a couple of things about doing this work that have really broken through a lot of, I think, stigma that that everyone has about about cannabis users, about the industry. The first one is working with dispensaries. You know, they have been amazing, you know, because we work with them to try to make sure that there are products available that that our participants can purchase. We need to know what's on the market so that we know what to study. And the dispensary owners that we have worked with have been amazing. They're really well-run companies. They want to know the answers as much as we do, right? And so so that's been the first surprise. The second is that the participants have been great because, again, these are people who are using these products and they might have ideas about, you know, what's safe, what's risky, how much is too much, what is this doing to my memory, but they don't know, right? And so it's interesting because in this particular area, because there's so little research out there, I think that the participants in some ways are more committed to making sure we get good data. So, you know, when when somebody picks product A and, you know, we then later after they've participated, you know, look at their blood to see what they used, they actually used product A. I mean, it's very rare that we have somebody say, I'm going to go use this and they don't actually do what they said. I'm not saying it never happens, but we've actually been really pleasantly surprised with um, our participants. They've been just a great group to work with. Have you ever had cases where a participant has come in, you know, seemingly convinced that a product has no effect on their memory or their, you know, cognition, and suddenly they get results or they, they go through a test and they realize maybe, <laughs> like, I guess, have you seen any instances of, like, self-discovery in the van, I guess is what I'm, what I'm asking. Interesting. I... I don't know. I think people have more ideas about how they feel than about effects that it might have on their performance. Does that make sense? Yeah. And strangely, one of the things that we've seen is that for really heavy users who've developed a lot of tolerance to the products that they're using, their memory performance actually doesn't get much worse and sometimes it gets better once they <laughs> use their product. But that that's an issue of tolerance, right? Yeah. And that's not the case with our studies of people who are using it to get some kind of medical benefit. So I think certainly people, you know, they have guesses about what they used based on how they feel. And that's not something that we can control. Definitely in the people who've been using for a long time, they know what they use. When they get a high CBD, low THC product, they know. Like even if it didn't have the label on it, they would know because they feel differently. But I would say that's more what we get rather than people having expectations about how it affects their performance. You said that a lot of dispensaries are seem very excited that yes. you're doing this research. Have you found any dispensaries that are skeptical or that are maybe a little uh, wary? Um, no, to be honest. I mean, I, I will say we haven't worked with that many, mm -hmm. but the ones that we have worked with have, have been very interested in helping us to do good science. Mm -hmm. So uh, like I said, we've been really, um, really pleasantly surprised. Because I'm interested in how the, in, you know, oftentimes industry has a very uh, tense relationship with yes. academia yes. and, uh, uh, you know, the alcohol industry and whatnot. And so, yep. yeah, I'm just curious, it, it, you know, how welcoming they've been or how, you know, how warm, I guess how warmly they've, yeah. they've, they've felt towards it. I think part of it is that, you know, we're scientists and so we're agnostic about what we're going to find out. And we're very clear about that. You know, we're interested in studying the potential harms. We're interested in studying the potential benefits. 
but we don't know. I mean, that's why we collect data to try to find out the answer. And so I think us presenting ourselves that way as, you know, we don't know the answer, we want to find out the answer, we want to do the best science we can. I think that kind of endears us to them because we don't have an agenda. I don't want to prove that, you know, cannabis does X or that it doesn't do X. I just want to know the answer to the question. So I think that's helpful in the relationship. And also the idea that, you know, we are studying both ends of the continuum, right? So I think if we came in with an exclusively, you know, cannabis is terrible, we have to show people how awful it is, then I think dispensaries would bristle about that, right? Because that would have a lot a lot of impacts on their business if if people had an agenda like that in doing this work. Same on the benefit side, right? So so I think us having a very balanced approach to what we do has been has been helpful. You guys are doing a study on cancer as well. Right? Yes. Yeah. So the studies we're doing on kind of the benefit end of the continuum, we have one study that's uh, ongoing with people who have anxiety and are using cannabis to treat their anxiety, one that is just starting um, with chronic pain patients. And then the cancer study actually is um, in the final stages of approvals. So we haven't started collecting data on that one, but that one is going to be a study with people who have late stage lung cancer and are using edible cannabis to help with the symptoms of their treatment, actually. So so like the side effects of chemotherapy, the side effects of radiation, chronic pain because of their treatment. So that one's going to start up soon. It seems like you're essentially researching whether or not uh, cannabis actually works for treating the conditions that people like, typically are, are, I guess you can't say prescribing, but or, or claim that it might be able to. Yes, treat. exactly. Uh, so, I mean, how much is there, how much research is there out there about those issues at all at this point? Like, give me. So there's some. Yeah. Um, there's an Institute of Medicine report um, that came out not too long ago from the National Academy of Sciences. And actually, Kent Hutchison was on that panel, and they reviewed all of the literature that has been accumulated so far on the effects, the medical, um, potential medical benefits of cannabis. There's pretty good evidence for pain. The effect size was in the small to moderate range for effects on pain. There were smaller effects for anxiety. Those are a little um, less clear. There's decent moderate effect sizes for things like um, nausea, so chemotherapy-induced nausea, and then also good effect sizes for um, seizure disorders. So there's a little bit of data out there. Part of the problem is that, as we've talked about, it's very difficult to do the kind of really carefully controlled randomized trials that you need to do to really understand, well, Who's this going to work for? What should they take? Does the level of THC and CBD matter? Um, those are answers that we simply don't have right now. Was that previous literature based on studies that were conducted with like that, again, that federal weed or is it? Yes. Okay. So, some of them. Some of them. Some of them. Some of them are, you know, self-report studies where people will self-report what they use, even though the investigators you know, don't necessarily know. Some of this work has been done outside of the United States. So Israel actually um, has a fairly active cannabis research program and has for some time. And so the data come from different places, and it's not always tremendously high-quality data. Some of it is animal work, right, looking at, you know, THC molecules and CBD molecules that are not 
necessarily in plant material, but are extracted and used in those kinds of studies. So it's it's kind of a scattered database, but there there's at least enough evidence that that we were able to convince reviewers, hey, you know, there seems to be evidence that people are using this for chronic pain or for cancer treatment symptoms or for anxiety, but we don't know really anything about you know, what works better, what might. And then the other question is, we also not only want to help people understand what might work for them, but also it's a risk benefit thing, right? So, you know, if when you talk to patients who use it for these uh, various issues, they want relief from their symptoms, but they don't necessarily want to be stoned. So, so what can we tell them about? Is there an optimal level of THC that might help you without compromising your ability to go to work and, yeah. you know, live your life? Or is it the case that maybe adding CBD to what you're taking, maybe using a product that has combined THC and CBD might help you in terms of, you know, memory and, and, and cognitive ability? Those are things that we just don't know yet. It's interesting hearing you talk about all this because, you know, you think about doctors now are essentially, I mean, again, they recommend marijuana now for certain conditions. And it sounds like they are kind of flying blind about the actual product that's on the market. Completely. Yeah. I mean, have you talked to doctors about that? What, yes. What, what, do they, what do they say? Yeah, it's interesting because actually our cancer project came about as a result of us talking to a couple of oncologists who say, you know, our patients say that they get relief from this. We write, you know, uh, recommendations for medical cards, like two to five a week. Um, so we know people are doing this. But then when our patients say, well, okay, doc, what should I get? We have no idea what to tell them. Other than, in this case, these are both um, lung cancer specialists, so they say, we tell them, you know, get an edible. <laughs> For God's sakes, don't smoke anything. But other than that, they don't, they don't know what to tell them. And so the patients end up going to the dispensary where the well-meaning bud tender says, oh, I know exactly what will help you. And, you know, maybe it will, maybe it won't, maybe it worked for the bud tender, but maybe it might not work for the patient. And it would be better if we had some data-based recommendations that either the doctor or the bud tender could give to patients. I want to talk a little bit about your background. How okay. did you get involved in you know, addiction research and risk behavior research. Sure, What's sure. to that? So um, my background is in social and health psychology. So I was interested in health and risk behavior my entire career. And I really started um, studying sexual risk behavior. I came of age research-wise, you know, in the, in the age of um, HIV and AIDS when that was a, you know, immediately fatal condition. And it seemed very, very important, still does um, to me. And I was particularly interested in adolescents and how they navigate, um, you know, sexual development and sexual risk behavior. And as I got more involved in adolescent research, um, and anybody who has been an adolescent obviously knows this too, it turns out that substance use and sexual risk behavior kind of go together. Um, just a little bit. Just a, just a tiny bit. And so I recognized, you know, I, I knew need to learn more about substance use if I'm going to do justice to, you know, the the kids that I want to help with the work I do in, in sexual risk reduction. Um, and that's when I met Kent. And his background is actually alcohol use, addiction. And so it was a nice sort of merging of our interests. Um, and subsequently, we got married. So we've, ah. we've merged in multiple ways now. <laughs> but anyway, we, we both came at this issue from different perspectives, but very complementary perspectives. And so... Um, um, 
you know, as I learned more about substance use, got more into alcohol research, you know, cannabis research. Um, meanwhile, his interests were, you know, developing from alcohol into into cannabis. Um, he did a little bit of work in in um, nicotine and smoking too. And so that's kind of how we arrived here. And then uh, Cinnamon Bidwell, actually, her uh, PhD is also in clinical psychology, um, and her focus was on the genetics of addiction. And she knows a lot about, you know, when they do twin studies and look at the genetics of addiction. So she had a, a even a different perspective on the addiction process. And so it's it's really a fantastic team. We we complement each other really well and are both very focused on understanding, you know, what does legalization mean for for public health, um, both to the good and and potentially to the bad. Since you started this line of research, have there mm-hmm. been any just surprises and kind of unexpected things that have come up while just trying to conduct it? Like, have there been anything like challenges that you didn't expect and actually trying to get it done? That's interesting. I mean, I think a lot of the challenges we faced are why we have the van yeah. now. And so, um, so that's, that's really been, um, that's been the major hurdle that we cleared. Um, finding uh, people to work for us who can, collect blood from people who are high in a van. (laughs) Um, That's been a bit of a challenge. Most people who are phlebotomists, um, they tend to work in very controlled hospital settings. They might not have a research background. So finding the expertise to to get done what we need to get done, I would say has been sort of a hurdle. How did you find your phlebotomist? (laughs) Well, once we get good ones, we try desperately to keep them. We have some colleagues now who know what we do, and they uh, they have graduate students and and undergrads who work with blood and work um, in a phlebotomy space. And so we've we've gotten kind of a network where we know, like, okay, well, this person's going to grad school now. We need a new um, phlebotomist, so we have those connections. And then we just advertise kind oh, of nationally. I should. And what is a phlebotomist? Oh, <laughs> sorry, a phlebotomist is someone who is trained to draw blood. And so obviously we need people who are very good at that, who are very confident in their skills, who can, you know, work with people out in the world who might be a little bit compromised. So I would say that's, that may be. Have um, there been any mishaps there? No, no. I mean, as you would have in any setting where people are getting blood drawn. So sometimes people faint when they get their Mm. blood drawn and that happens at the doctor's office. It happens, you know, in the, in the hospital, it occasionally happens here too, but that's, that's an an event that you would expect regardless of the setting. Um, some people are just not awesome at having their blood drawn. But the um, when you said 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 surprise uh, about doing this research, I mentioned that we study a lot of different health and risks risks in the lab, and um, one of the health behaviors we do a lot of work on is physical activity. Well, since we um, study substance use also, in all of our different protocols, we ask about alcohol use. And now since cannabis is legal, we ask about cannabis. And so we're doing a study with older adults and physical activity where we bring people in and they do supervised exercise. We're looking at the effects of physical activity activity on cognition and, and functioning. And of course, we asked people if they did cannabis. Now, we weren't really expecting anything because these are folks, you know, 60 and older. But it turns out <laughs> that a fair number of them are actually cannabis users. And so we thought, well, that's interesting. We should, uh, you know, I wonder if there's any connection between cannabis and exercise. 
Well, that caused us to look at the literature on cannabis and exercise. It's a banned substance, yeah. as you might know, the, uh, so that you're not allowed to use it in sport, which would indicate that it's performance enhancing, but there's not much evidence for that. It doesn't no. seem to enhance performance. I um, can't imagine like a running back getting high to really no, like, no, get no. his game on point. <laughs> like, <laughs> At the same time, um, so we're, anyway, we're sitting so. in Boulder, Colorado, which mm -hmm. is kind of the mecca for ultra-endurance athletes, right? Yeah. And so the other thing we know is that a lot of endurance athletes were saying, oh, yeah, you know, I, I take an edible before my 20-mile run, and it helps me get through it. And we're like, wow, there, there's something weird going on with cannabis and exercise. So we looked in our older adults, and they come in and do three times a week supervised exercise. But, but that's the minimum, right? So they're allowed to do – other stuff. So halfway through the exercise, their 16-week exercise protocol, we take, you know, ask them, how much exercise have you been doing? And and so we had this subset of about 15 who are current cannabis users. We matched them by experimental condition and age and gender and race and all that stuff to some non-users. And we asked who was, how much were people doing? Because we thought, well, is cannabis, you know, is it a problem? Are they exercising less? Or is it helping the exercise more? It turns out they were exercising more, like a full extra day a week compared to the non-users. Now, it's totally post hoc. Um, you know, we, this was not a hypothesis we intended to test, but it's fascinating. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And so now we're very curious in terms of the public health effects of cannabis. We, we actually wrote a paper, um, one of my graduate students and I um, and Kent wrote a paper on the potential effects of cannabis on exercise. There's some evidence that it might decrease motivation. We've all heard of couch lock, right? And so <laughs> more difficult maybe to get off the couch. There's also evidence that it might increase affective response to exercise. So the extent to which you enjoy exercise, which would explain kind of the endurance athletes. The most compelling potential connection between cannabis and exercise is that it might help in recovery. So if we know it's an anti-inflammatory, we know that exercise is an inflammatory stimulus. We know that people get sore when they exercise, um, maybe doing something new or doing something harder than they've done before. If cannabis allows people to recover faster, maybe it's allowing them to do more activity. Instead we don't know. <laughs> popping a couple ibuprofen after exactly. my 10K, I can just pop an a, edible, pop yeah. an edible, smoke a joint, something. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Interesting. Yes. So, I, you know, that that's kind of fascinating to me because it seems like that's a, it, that, that, I guess for lack of a better word, stumbling into that line of research is yes. a product of just being in a place where this you know, drug is legal and widely used and you have not, and you're actually in a place to, you know, do the research. Right. It's like, this stuff is going to come up. The yeah. more having a legalized environment is going to, you know, you're going to get, it sounds like it's just going to naturally create more interesting research. Well, sure. and especially with older adults. So um, I don't know if you know, but right now, older adults are the fastest growing segment of the population. Yeah. They are also people ages 15 up are also the segment of the population of cannabis users that's growing the fastest. So you'd expect legalization Baby would have a bunch of like adolescents their... using cannabis. And that's actually not the case. Actually, adolescent use has gone down in Colorado since legalization, but older adult use has gone up. And we think this is fascinating because if it's the case, certainly with people living longer and longer, one of the challenges is to make those added years of life high quality, right? So we don't just want to add 
quantity of life, we want to add quality of life. And so we're curious, is cannabis maybe part of that? Like why why are older adults using it? Is it, you know, just just to get high, just to relax? Is it about, you know, inflammation? Maybe it's allowing them to have more mobility. It's a fascinating question. And so we're writing a grant right now to try to study that and figure out why are older adults flocking to cannabis use? Why are they using it? What are they getting out of it? Are there potentially cognitive harms that might be happening? Because we know that as we get older, our cognitive function kind of gets worse and worse and worse. Um, so there's a lot of in- interesting questions around aging and cannabis use that we think is going to be another really interesting area to look at. Are there studies that you want to do but just still can't because the regulations are, are somehow getting in the way? Well, I mean, we'd love to do the careful pharmacokinetic kind of work that you usually are able to do (laughs) with substances. So like I said, when we can bring people in and have them drink alcohol, you know, we can test your blood alcohol level every few minutes, figure out where you are on the alcohol curve, figure out how you're doing cognitively during all that. We can't do that with cannabis because we can't be there while people are using it. We'd also like to be able to actually give them the product so we know for sure (laughs) what they're using, right? When we say, okay, use product A, we'd like to actually know that they're using product A, right? And and we can't do that. So yeah, there's there's things like that. We'd love to be able to have tighter experimental control. But for the time being, I think we're we're doing really as 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 well as we can. What has the reaction to your research so far from your academic peers been? It's been varied, I would say. So I think just as in life, people have different opinions about legalization, they have different opinions about, you know, whether cannabis is harmful or beneficial or both. Um, I think that's true in academia as well. Um, I've certainly talked to people who have very strong biases (laughs) about, you know, the risks associated with cannabis and really feel like that's where we should be focusing our effort. But I would say that's, that's more the exception than the norm. I would say that in general, people in the science world want to know the answers to scientific questions. And so the response has been largely positive. For example, I presented the data on older adults at the International Cannabinoid Research Society meeting um, in Leiden, Netherlands over the summer. And this was a group of um, researchers who are really from all over the spectrums. A lot do, you know, animal work on cannabinoid receptors, um, all the way up through clinical work. And People were fascinated. You know, they they wanted to know. So why would this happen? What do you think's going on? What's the next question in this line of research? So I would say in general, and and maybe that's a little biased because it was a cannabis meeting. Um, but I would say that in general, that's been the response that we've gotten is, wow, this is fascinating. We can't wait to see what you find out. What about from like, is there an appetite from journals for that for this kind of stuff? Does it seem like yes, yeah, for sure, yeah. You know, there again, you get some reviewers in the peer review process. Um, who clearly kind of have their own bias about how things should be presented. And and so that happens for sure. But I think in general, journals want to be a part of this too. I mean, it's it's a hot topic. They definitely want to publish, but they also want good science. So I think we've we've definitely experienced some some pretty stringent reviews and and been able to respond to them. But one of the reasons I asked is because you guys are, it seems like you guys are still working around these restrictions. And yes. you're you, you have gotten as close to being able to do, you know, a a traditional study as possible. 
while still you're facing these roadblocks. And so I want like, do you ever get criticism from reviewers who are saying, well, it's not a classic randomized study or yada, you didn't do this the way I would in a lab. Like we, yes, yes. And, um, as an example, we had a grant reviewed, um, actually that that's a grant on the relationship of cannabis to obesity, but we were talking, you know, we described the protocol just like we do it. And one of the reviewers was very confused about why aren't you buying the cannabis? Why aren't you giving it to them? Why aren't you controlling and, you know, the response is, well, <laughs> as we described in the protocol, it's illegal. We're not allowed to. So we do still have to reiterate that we are working under constraints. And yes, while this isn't the perfect way to do it, we think that we've actually, we've actually instituted quite a few controls that allow us to, to have confidence in our conclusions. You're doing the best science anybody can. At this so point, yes. Yeah. <laughs> This has been a fantastic conversation. Thanks oh, so good. much. Thank I've you really so enjoyed much. this. I've learned a lot. Good. I've enjoyed it too. Thank you. That's it for this week's episode of Working. As always, I'm your host, Jordan Weissman. And if you liked this episode, please go to Apple Podcasts and write us a review. Don't just press the stars, although I've noticed some of you are doing that. You're leaving us five stars. But actually write a review. Tell us how great you think we are. And if you want to tell us how terrible we are or something you think we missed or have ideas for the show, write us an email at working at slate.com. Again, working at slate.com. The producer on working is the invaluable Jessamine Molly. Special thank you to Justin B. Wright for the ad music. See you next time. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com, the tool that makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and goals, and the Wondersuite tools will automatically lay out your WordPress website or store in minutes. Seriously. From there, you can customize your design, pick your brand colors, and add blocks. No custom theme or coding required. You'll get content suggestions that you can keep or revise. And with Yoast SEO built in, we automatically help you get found in search engines. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins to an AI-powered help bot, our built-in tools make WordPress wonderful for everyone. Whether you're a beginner or a pro, you can join over 2 million Bluehost users. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. That's bluehost.com slash wondersuite.